we're in this, this section on the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. Uh, the book of Hebrews does a lot of contrast. Uh, we have a congregation here in this, that this letter was written to, which is primarily, well, which is just about all, Jewish Christians. That's who the, that's who the book is written to, hence the book of Hebrews. Uh, but uh, I believe the book was written to Hebrews outside of Palestine, outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel. They were people who were in the Greek world, but they were Jewish. Now there's some argument and debate on that. But that's really not the point. The point is that it was written to Jewish believers. And the Jew, these, these Jewish believers were being persecuted by their fellow Jews. Roman persecution hadn't kicked in at this juncture. We're a little bit early for that. Some of it was going on in some places, but they weren't facing Roman persecution. They were facing persecution by their fellow Jews. Uh, the persecution they was facing was probably economic, family cut off. They were cut off from the social life, they were pushed out, they were disowned, uh, those sorts of things. And as a result of that, there, was, there were those who were trying to draw them to come back, to, to stay, to come back into the Jewish camp, if you will. And uh, as a result of that, there are, there are a number of warning passages throughout this book, warning them uh, that there is only one means of salvation, which is Jesus Christ. That's, that theme runs through this. So as, as we have, what we see is in this book, this is a book of Jesus is better. Uh, that's really what the book is. Uh, the English translators translate that Greek word in a number of ways, but its basic, its basic root meaning is better. Uh, Jesus is better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the, cov- the old covenant. Those, those kind of things. Here, it's giving us the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. That began in chapter 5, and it runs through the end of chapter 7, then he moves to, to the... Uh, but at this, at this juncture, he's been talking about the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, and he's, and he's told us, beginning in chapter 5 and then running all the way through it, that Jesus is of a different order. His priesthood is of a different order than the Aaronic priesthood. He's not a priest after the order of Aaron. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And, of course, Melchizedek is a character that shows up in Genesis chapter 14. Uh, he, uh, he just kind of appears on the pages of history, and uh, then he kind of just disappears from the pages of history. There's two verses, or excuse me, three verses in chapter 14 that deal with him, and they basically tell of a time when Abraham has gone to rescue his nephew Lot, who has settled in the area in the plains outside of Sodom and Gomorrah, and a coalition of kings have come against that land, have conquered it, have taken everybody, but including Lot and all of his family, as captives. And Abraham puts an army together and goes and rescues him. And on his return, as the scriptures say, from the slaughter of the kings, Abraham is met on the plains outside of Jerusalem by a man by the name of Melchizedek. And the text tells us that Melchizedek is the king of Salem, which is a derivative from the word shalom, the Hebrew word shalom, meaning peace. And it is also the ancient name for the city of Jerusalem. And we're also told that he is a king of righteousness. And to him, Abraham gives an offering. That's what we're told. However, a thousand years later, and probably the primary Old Testament text that runs through chapter 5 through chapter 7, 
David prophesies and tells us something about this Melchizedek. And basically what he tells us is, this is the order under which Jesus is a high priest, Melchizedek. Uh, uh, Psalms 110, verse 4. And uh, that's kind of a, a, primary, a primary Old Testament text for looking at this. It reads, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we have been delineating who Melchizedek is and how that relationship comes in. And, of course, Melchizedek is just a man. He is a type, and, and he just points us to the type of high priest that Jesus will be because he is a high priest who is also a king, which the first part of uh, the Psalms 110 tells us, tells us that you, the scepter will not depart from, G, uh, from Judah, uh, which is all pointing. That's a messianic psalm, incidentally. It's seen that way by the, by the Jews. And, and uh, so we, as we come into chapter 7, he's concluding this. He's talked about Melchizedek. He's given us some background on Melchizedek. He's made the comparisons to Jesus on Melchizedek. And basically, chapter 20 verses, or, or chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 7 verses, uh, verses 20 through 28, uh, uh, give us a summary. It's just sort of a summary. And he's going to talk about the, pi- the priesthood of, Mel- of, of Jesus here. And he, he, he says, first of all, that he is, he is a high priest by oath. He's a high priest because he is eternal. He's a high priest because he is sinless, and then he is the perfect high priest. And those are, those are the, the way I broke down the text. So it begins in chapter, chapter, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, chapter 7, verse 20. We'll, we'll go through, uh, first of all, we'll go through 22, uh, through 22, 23. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, But this one was made priest with an oath by the one who said of him, the Lord is sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And incidentally, through the book of of, uh, Hebrews, as he finishes one section or one idea or one, uh, one of the truths about Jesus, he introduces the next one. And that's what he's doing here. He's introducing the covenant here. Uh, that's, that's, that is being introduced here. Chapters 8 and 9 will then expand upon it. Uh, but here he's introducing it. And he, so he says, first of all, the word and. He means this follows what he just said in verse 19. And he says, for the law made nothing purpose, perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God, meaning Jesus as our high priest. Uh, if you read the whole context, that's what... That's what he's talking about here. So he says, and giving additional proof to the superiority of Jesus, Jesus' priesthood. Once again, he he cites Psalms 110, verse 4, the first half of it. He doesn't cite it all here. He just he cites the part about the oath because that's what he's going to focus on at this at this juncture. He's also cited it in 5:6, in 5:10, in 6:20, in 7:11, and 7:12. All of those places has he cited this psalm. It's, it's featured throughout it. And, and they, all, they are all meant to bring the priesthood of Jesus Christ front and center. That's what, he's, that's what he's doing as he comes to this text. He's bringing it front and center. So he said, it's not without an oath, 
For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. And he's talking about the priesthood of Aaron. He says the Aaronic priesthood, God didn't make an oath about them. He set an ordinance through Moses, and Moses appointed them. Uh, that's the context from Leviticus. That's, that's how that priesthood came into to existence. God made an ordinance, uh, and he set it in place. It was never meant to be permanent, and he's going to demonstrate why it wasn't permanent as we move through this later on. But here he is just simply saying he didn't do it by an oath. He set an ordinance through Moses. But when he appointed Jesus, he gave an oath. That's the point here. The point is, that, the point is not that when an oath is involved, the word of God is more, more the word of God. No, it's still the same. It's all the truth of God. But here, it's to emphasize the importance. It's to emphasize the importance of this particular event. It's to bring our attention to it, to make us see it, and to make us look at it, and to make us understand it. That's, that's what the, the, the idea of the oath is here. Uh, we've seen oaths before in, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, Abraham, when he was given given his covenant with God, an unconditional covenant, after, after the sacrifice of Isaac, God did it by making an oath. We are told earlier in the text that God had no one higher to swear by, so he swore by himself. Uh, you know, I mean, that's just kind of obvious. Uh, who, who does God swear by? He swears by himself. And that's, that's what the text talks about here. We're going to go back and look for just a minute because we kind of need to bring this into focus. In chapter 6, starting at verse 13, he says, for, God, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having, having patiently awaited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is, the fi- is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purposes, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, which are his word and his oath, um, it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong courage to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is, this is what, he's, what he's focusing on here. Uh, the Aaronic priesthood wasn't set this way. It never was set this way. But in Jesus' case, it was set by an oath. I don't know about you, but I've served on jury duty. Did you have, you've probably done that too. And you had to swear an oath before the jury duty. When a group of my friends and neighbors selected me to serve in the armed forces of the United States of America, I had to swear an oath. That's what you do. It's the confirmation of loyalty, uh, of fidelity. And that's what, Je- that's what it is saying here of God. When Jesus was appointed high priest after the order of Melchizedek, God swore an oath that that was a reality, that that was was the way things were going to be. The 
purpose of the oath is to guarantee the unchangeability, to set it in place, to affirm it, to make sure it is clearly understood. He's not going to change it. It's set. It's more or less set in stone, if you will. Uh, Christ's priesthood is eternal by the oath, as, as noted in 613. There was no one greater by which to swear. It was set in place. And then in verse 22, he, he, go, he goes on, and, 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 and as, we, as we go through this, you know, he, he goes on down to verse 22, and he says, and this, as a result of this, there's a result of this oath. The result is that, that it has made Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. It says Jesus guarantees a better covenant. Uh, we have the results of this eternal oath that Jesus guarantees a better covenant, uh, which will be the subject of verses of chapters 8 and 9. Guarantee or surety, uh, it, it's a pl- it, can, it can be used as a, as a pledge. It's used, the word is used as a betrothal. It's, it's something that sets something in place. It's, it's a guarantee uh, that he, he will not... Uh, he will not, this is going to happen. This is going to come, come about. This is a surety. That's the idea here. In Genesis 43, 9, uh, we have the events of, of Joseph, who has been elevated to, the, to the, the highest level of human responsibility under Pharaoh running the world, basically. And the world is in a great famine, and people are starving, and Joseph has control of the food. And as a result of that, the sons of Jacob go to see their brother, not knowing it's him. And uh, as a part of that exchange, he wants to know about, since they have sold him into slavery and the things they did to him, he wants to know about his, his, his younger brother, Benjamin. And so he uh, sets kind of a trap for them, in a sense. He, uh, he, wants to, he wants to see Benjamin. He wants them to bring Benjamin. And uh, Judah steps up in leadership here and sets himself as a surety that he will guarantee Benjamin's safety. He tells his father that. He later tells Joseph that as well, that use me. If anything happens, you take it out on me. That's a surety. That's a surety. Uh, it's, it's also seen in Philemon, verses 18 and 19, where Paul, as he is returning Philemon, Excuse me. He's, he's turning Onesimus, the runaway sa- slave, to Philemon. He, he says to Philemon, he says, look, if he's done you any wrong, he says, I'm, turning, I'm sending you back, not a slave, but a brother. And he says, and if he's done anything wrong, you charge it to my account. I will be the surety for him. That, that's the idea here. This is saying Jesus is the surety of the new covenant which he's going to expand upon later. That's what he's saying. The result of the oath is we have assurance in our salvation. We can be assured that what God has said and what Jesus has said he is going to do will happen. That's, that's, uh, that's the idea here. It's, it's a surety. It's also this same word. It has a synonym, and that synonym is mediator or mediate. Uh, Galatians 3:19 and 20, First Timothy 2:5, and then all through Hebrews, there, it, this same word is used. Jesus not only guarantees but represents us before God. 
He guarantees our salvation before God, and he represents us before God. These are, these are the, the, the results of this oath and, and placing Jesus as our high priest. And then, of course, he says that he's the guarantor of the new covenant. He guarantees the new covenant. That's, that's the other part of it, Jeremiah 31. Hebrews 8.10 is going to say, quoting from, from, from Jeremiah, says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my law into their minds, and I will write, write them on their heart, and, they will, and, they will, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And he goes on from that. They, they will no longer have to, to teach everyone because they will know God. That's, that's the guarantee of the new co- that, that Jesus guarantees. The old covenant, Moses was the mediator. The new covenant, Jesus is the mediator. His atoning work guarantees that covenant. The oath of God guarantees it's a reality. Uh, those, are, those are the things that he's saying here in this first part, the oath. Jesus is a better high priest because of oath. And secondly, he's a, he is a, a high priest that is eternal, verses 24 uh, through 25. It says, but he holds his office permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So not only has God by oath set Jesus in place. He has also made that priesthood eternal. It doesn't change. He says, he says he's, he's, he's eternal. That's the idea here that is being expressed. He says, but he holds his priesthood permanently. That means forever. That's the idea here. It, doesn't, it has no end. Incidentally, in Greek, this is one big, long sentence. It doesn't, there's no break in it. It's just one big, long sentence. And so what he does is, is if we break, the, break it down by, by verses here, verse 23 gives us the problem, verse 24 gives us the person, verse 25 gives us, gives us the consequence or the, or the, or the result as we, as we go through this. So the first thing is the problem. The problem with the old priesthood was the length of office. That was the problem. Uh, the priest, we looked, uh, we're not going to go back and look at these verses, but, but in the, in the, in the uh, Levitical laws pertaining to the priesthood, a priest uh, served from the time he was 25 years old till he was 50. Some of them kind of hung around after that, but the bottom line is none of them hung around too long because they all did one thing. They had one thing in common. They died. And so there was a cessation of, of, of high priests, one after another. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't stay around. They, they left, just like all men do. Uh, they, they, had a, they had a termination date. That's, that's, what, he's, that's what he's saying here. They, there, came a part, there came a point when their high priesthood ended. I don't know about you, but when I buy milk in the store, I look for the date, and I look for the bottle that has the oldest, you know, has the date that's farthest out, because I know that's the last bottles they put up there. Uh, you know, well, there's no termination date with Jesus. That's, 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 that's the point here. 
the old priesthood had a termination date. That termination was the cross. And when Jesus arose and took his place at the right hand of God, the high priesthood basically terminated. Jesus took it over at that point. The ironic line was done. So that's the problem. And then he, t- he talks about the person in verse 23. In verse 23, he says the form, uh, excuse me, verse 24. Verse 24, he says, uh, but, he, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And what he's saying here, the pronoun here refers back to Jesus. He's saying Jesus holds his priesthood forever. He's contrasting this to the Aaronic priesthood. The Aaron priests had a, had a termination date. They could only serve for so long, and if that didn't take them out of office, death did. And he's saying, conversely, uh, Jesus doesn't have a termination date. There is no expiration date on Jesus. That's what he's saying here. He holds it permanently. There's a contrast here. With Aaron, there are many, their term is limited, and they're overcome by death. With Jesus, he is one, he is eternal, and he conquered death. That's the picture that he's, that he's painting here. And incidentally, throughout the text of Hebrews, I, those of you who have been with us, we've talked about this before, but for the rest of you, the name Jesus is used almost singularly through, through the text. Once in a while he says Jesus Christ, sometimes he says Lord Jesus, but most of the time he just says Jesus. Uh, most of the commentators kind of say that, that that is to illuminate his earthly ministry, to show the connection of him to us, to, to, to illustrate that. His, his life, his birth, his ministry, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and now the fact that he's seated at the right hand of God, where he's going to go on to say where he makes intercession for us. The, the point here is Jesus is eternal. Therefore, his priesthood is eternal. He will not be replaced. He's the one and the only true high priest. That's, that's the idea he's trying to do. And then he gives us the consequence in verse, verse 25. He says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he lives, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And so he has a couple of things here that he says about this. He says, first of, of all, consequently, the ESBC uses, the NASB says, hence also, and the King James says, wherefore, uh, the point is, the result is, that's, that's what it's saying, the result of this is, he's an eternal priest. He lives eternally. He's a prim- permanent priest. And he goes on, he says, he says, and he is not only that, but he is able. He is the one who has the power to save. That's, that's the idea here. He's able to do it. He has the ability to, to accomplish what he says, John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, Acts 4, 12. And there, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is able. 
That's, that's, the, that's the thrust here. He's the one who has the capability. He is able. He is able to do exactly what he says he is going to do. And then he goes on to say, not only is he able, but he's able to do it to the uttermost. Kind of an interesting word. The word actually means at all times. That's what it means. At all times. Completely. Uh, there is never a moment of weakness in his ability. We had a, a day yesterday working over at the, uh, the new building that we're all hopefully going over to see later today and, and have, have a bite to eat together. And uh, the crew I was on was busting out, uh, a w busting out some uh, stucco. And uh, I'm going to tell you right now, for an old man, that was a rough job. And I am, and my bones ache this morning. Jesus doesn't get up with aching bones after breaking down a wall. He's able. He's able to the uttermost at all times, completely. That's, that's the idea here. That's what he's wanting us to see. He's wanting to see... He sets us free from the curse of sin, and he restores fellowship with God. John 17, 21. That they may all be one, just as you, just as you Father, and are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that we would, that we, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's, that's the idea. He is able to save to the uttermost, completely, totally. It has the idea of, com of completeness. Salvation is, seen, salvation is seen in Scripture in, the, in, in three tenses. It's seen in the past tense and the present tense and the future tense. You never fall out of that. Once, once the initial salvation experience has taken place, that is, I have been saved, that is justification. At that point, you are just before God because of Jesus Christ, and that doesn't change. But then he puts you through a process as long as you're breathing and you're standing on top of, uh, top of the earth in, in which you're being saved, and we call that sanctification. He is bringing us from glory to glory. He's, making us, he's in the process of making us more like Jesus, and ultimately he takes us home, and that's called glorification, and I have been saved. The totality of the completeness is, is there. The whole process moves on, and Jesus is the one who completes it, and it's guaranteed. That's the idea here. And then finally, he says in this text, he makes another, another result, another consequence, if you will, another henceforth, another wherefore. He says, he is our intercessor. He lives to make intercession for us. The text has already told us that he is seated at the right hand of God, and that's from the position from which he makes intercession for us. Jesus is our advocate before the Father. You know, you stop and you think about that, and it's, it's somewhat beyond capability to really totally comprehend. But every time I fall victim to my sin nature, Jesus is right there before the Father telling him, I covered it. It's taken care of. It's under my blood. 
That, that's the idea here. Every time. Not one gets through. He makes intercession. Intercession means to approach someone with a petition. That's what it means. Jesus petitions God on my behalf and your behalf. Not just mine, all of you. All who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful for that. And the text, and it's interesting because we go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 kind of expands this idea a little bit. In, in 34, he, Paul verifies the same fact. He says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us? In other words, making petition for us. But if you go back up a little bit in, in chapter 8, we're also told in verse, uh, let's start at verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we did not know what to pray uh, for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is on the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together to good according to his purposes. You, you understand what it's saying there? The whole Godhead is involved in this. The Father is, is being petitioned by both the Son and the Spirit on our behalf. And not only that, when I mess up a prayer, which is quite often, the Spirit takes that goofy prayer and makes it right before God and makes, makes, me to, makes my prayers within the will of God and changes my mind. He petitions on my behalf before God. Jesus is our high priest. He makes petition for me and for you before our God. And it, it is another evidence of the security we have in Christ. Jude, verse 24. Jude wrote, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the, pres uh, before the presence of his glory with great joy. Stop and think about that for a minute. Jesus is going to present you before God with great joy. That's what this text is saying. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all times and now and forevermore. Amen. Once again... Jesus is eternal. He is a high priest who will be the eternal high priest. There is no termination date like there was with Aaron. He always lives to intercede for us until he takes us home. And then thirdly, he's a high priest who is sinless. Verses 26 and 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those, like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. 
So here, here he's talking, he's telling us that our high priest, Jesus, is sinless. He's pointing to the sinless life of Jesus Christ. He says, he says such a high priest, again declaring his greatness, he is such a high priest. He is such a high priest. And then he lists five characteristics of Jesus. First of all, he's holy. Uh, this word means that he, in his holiness, he is like God in every aspect without sin. Uh, he, this, is, this is seen throughout to Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 3, where it says he's the exact radiance, the image of God. It's seen in 4.15. Uh, in 1 John 3, 5, he says, we know, that, that we know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. That's, that's the point. He is absolutely holy. Sin does not touch or affect him. In the whole of his time on earth, sin couldn't touch him. He never succumbed, he never succumbed to it, if you will. And then he says, he's innocent. Secondly, he's innocent. Uh, some texts translate that blameless um, basically this is uh, this says this takes holiness and applies it in a different direction uh, the holiness itself talks to his inner person his inner disposition this applies to his external life it says nothing nothing he ever did was sin he never committed any sin at all he never participated in sin at all the impl- the implication is a contrast with Aaron because in verse 27 he says Aaron had to give offerings for his sin before he could do anything else. But in Jesus' case, there was no necessity for that. Uh, Jesus didn't have to make any offering for sin. He was sinless. He was innocent. That's, That's what this is saying. Jesus was free from all sin and all blame. And then thirdly, he was, he was unstained. Uh, this word can also be translated pure or undefiled. The idea is while Jesus, Jesus lived his earthly life and he lived in an environment of sin, it didn't touch him. He wasn't polluted by the environment in which he lived. He was free from it. And then fourthly, it says he was separated or set apart from sinners. While Jesus shared our humanity, he does not participate in our sin. Matthew eleven nineteen, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we're told, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every aspect, has been tempted as we were yet without sin. Yes, he was tempted, but he never sinned. He, is, he, he was unpolluted by the world in which he lived. That's, that's what he's telling us here. The dirt of this world didn't stick to him. He was set apart. And then finally, it says he's exalted above the heavens. This runs through the book of Hebrews in chapter 1. I already alluded to this in chapter 1, verse 3. 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the, by the word of his power. And after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He is exalted. In, in 726, he's being exalted here. That's what he's saying. In his sinlessness, he's exalted. In Ephesians 4, uh, 410, it tells us that he ascended above the heavens, literally meaning that Jesus sits above all else. All that is, he sits above it. That's his, exalt, his exalted position. And, of course, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, I think you're familiar with that. That's the one where eventually the entire entirety of mankind will bow before him as king. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. It's that passage. And then, if you go want to see the final, the finality, and the greatness of his exaltation, you go to Revelation chapter 5, 9 and following, when the Lamb takes the scroll, and the whole of heaven rejoices and praises him. He's exalted. He is exalted. And then he goes on to, to tell us, and he makes the comparison in, 20, in 27. In 27, we've already touched on it, but basically in 27, he is saying, in verse 27, he's saying to us, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his, for his own sin and then those for the people since he did it once and for all and he offered himself once and for all when he offered himself up. What he's saying here is he's saying simply this. He says, look, you look at the Leviticus 26 and you look at the order for the priesthood and all that they had to do and then you look at the sacrifice system and all the things that went on in the sacrifice system the first thing the high priest had to do before he offers the sacrifice for the people is offer one for himself because he too was a sinner and he was in need of salvation just as much in a sacrifice just as much as those he was sacrificing on behalf of That's, that's what he's telling him here. That's, that's the priesthood of Aaron. Aaron was stained. Aaron wasn't holy. Aaron wasn't innocent. He wasn't completely separated. He needed a sacrifice. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't. It probably refers to all the sacrifices that were involved, but it focuses on the Day of Atonement. That's, that's the real sacrifice it's focused on. He's, contracted to, he's contrasted to Jesus, who doesn't need to offer a daily sacrifice because he is holy, because he is innocent, because he is unstained, because he is separated, because he is exalted, because he is God. That's the... That's the ultimate uh, idea here. The Aaron priesthood was temporary. It was ineffective. And it, was and it had a planned termination date. That's what the, the text is telling us. Jesus voluntarily died on the cross and presented himself as a once and for all sacrifice. Once and for all demonstrates the end of the Levitical priesthood. 
And it's only going to be a few years after the writing of this book that God made that completely evident because he sent a Roman general into Jerusalem and he destroyed the temple and ended Judaism, 70 AD. And then finally, to bring this all to a conclusion, Jesus is perfect, verse 28. For the law appoints man in their weakness as high priest, but the word of oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He kind of con- he brings it all to a conclusion here. The priesthood uh, is all summarized and concludes his teaching on the eternality of the priesthood of Jesus. And as he's going to move now to the topic of the covenant, but before he does that, he, he says, look, here's the contrast. It's a for and but contrast in the, in, the, in the text. He says, for the law appoints as a high priest men who are weak. That's what it says. That's, that's the text definition of the Aaron priesthood. They're appointed men who are weak. But by the oath of God, a son was appointed who has been made perfect forever. That's the contrast he wants you to see. That's what he wants you to understand. The priesthood of Jesus Christ is forever, and it's perfect. And note here, weak doesn't mean, like I feel this morning, it means moral weakness. It, it talks about the sinful state under which these men were appointed. They were weak because of that sinful state. But the son, who has no sinful state, who is holy, who is innocent, I forgot the next word, but at any rate, who is all of those things that he listed in the last verse, he is appoint, who is appointed by an oath, he is perfect. Throughout the book of Hebrews, I listed the references here. Chapter 1, verse 2, 3, 5, 8, chapter 3, 6, uh, uh, 4, 14, 7, 3, and then in 2, 10, and, and, and 7, 25. Uh, all of these talk about Jesus and his perfection, who he is, the reality of his person. Only Jesus could offer the perfect sacrifice. He was the only one who had the power to defeat death. Notice chapter 9, verses 27 through 28. And just as it appointed for men to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered up once uh, to bear the sin of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await him. And then finally, he's... He, he says, and he shows, he also showed perfect obedience as demonstrated in chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. It says this, although he was a son, he learned obedience, uh, obedience through what he su- suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God as a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. We serve under a high priest who is eternal, who is perfect, 
and who was established so by the oath of God. It gives absolute assurance in his ability to save. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you this morning. We thank you, we thank you for this text about the reality of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, uh, that he is our eternal high priest, that he and the Spirit together make intercession, they make petition on our behalf, uh, that, that they stand before us, before you, and have made it possible for us to be heard by you this morning that you take this humble prayer and you make it perfect in your will, uh, that you have, by your grace, through your love and mercy, sent Christ into this world to redeem us through his sacrifice, not the sacrifice of bulls and goats and, and sheep, but by your son. And we thank you, Father, as we come before you this morning and we thank you for your mercy, we thank you for your grace, and we praise you for your great love that you've shown toward us. And we just ask that we would find ourselves being conformed day by day into the image of our Savior, looking forward to the day that we stand before you and give you the praise and the glory in person. And we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>